Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This week on Forward, a session I did at the Aspen Ideas Festival moderated by Savannah Sellers of NBC News. To the question, do we need a new party? This talk got fantastic feedback and I'm thrilled to share it all in the podcast this week. Do we need a new party from Aspen Ideas Festival with Savannah Sellers of NBC News? Welcome to our program tonight, Does America Need a New Party? It's my pleasure to introduce Andrew Yang, who is co-chair of Forward Party. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Aspen. It's great to be back. <laughs> and to discuss with Andrew, we're very pleased to have someone from our media partner, Savannah Sellers, anchor of NBC's Morning News Now. Take it away. Hello, and thank you very much for that introduction. Hi, everybody. Thank you for being here. So we can just dive right in now that we've just had that. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's great to be here with you, Savannah. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Panel number eight. I <laughs> Save the best for last. <laughs> That's true. You are my last, and I am, I'm always excited to talk to you. I've been fortunate enough to do that a few times. Let's start. We are going to touch on a lot tonight. I just want to say that now. And there will be time. Mr. Yang has graciously agreed to take questions from you as well. So think of your questions, and we are definitely going to save plenty of time to do that at the end. Um, we will touch on some breaking news that we've all seen today out of the Supreme Court. We will get to all of it. Um, but I want to start kind of focused on the premise of this panel in terms of America needing a third party. And what I have loved in talking to you, whether it is in front of people, whether it's for television or whether it's on the phone prior to doing one of these, is how candid you are. And the last time that we spoke, you said to me, very frankly, after you had ran for president, you had a terrible view of American politics and you essentially had a bad time. And you pointed out the fact that most Americans don't have the chance to know what it's like to run for president and that you have a lot of anecdotes about why it was so terrible. I want to start with what that time was like and what it made, what propelled you to come out of it and think, okay, forward is what I'm going to do. Well, uh, thanks, Savannah. Um, I had a great time running for president. I want to make that clear. Uh, and grateful for all the, the support that I got on the trail. I was an unlikely candidate, and I will confess to you all, I didn't actually expect to be president. <laughs> it's true. Um, my, my goal was to try and prepare our country for the most profound economic transformation of our time, uh, which was going to accelerate the displacement of many Americans. In my view, the reason why Trump became our president in 2016, we all remember that night, uh, you, the reactions you all had, I had a similar reaction, not all, you know, most of you, let's say. Uh, <laughs> and, but I, I thought, wow, what does this mean? Uh, and to me, it was a reaction to the fact that we'd eliminated 4 million manufacturing jobs that were based in Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all the Midwestern swing states that Trump needed to win and did win. And my friends in tech knew that we were going to do the same thing to millions of call center workers, retail workers, eventually truck drivers uh, and Uber drivers. What percentage of Americans graduate from college? It's about a third, 35% or so. So when you think about the economy, it's two-thirds high school graduates. And a lot of those jobs are going to get decimated by AI and other things. So I ran for president to try and warn us and prepare us for the fact that this transition was coming and that we didn't seem to understand it or be reckoning with it. Uh, and our political system certainly did not want to have that conversation. So the frustration I had coming off the trail, I met many incredible Americans who wanted a better future for themselves and their families and loved it. Uh, but I, I still knew that our institutions were not meaningfully grappling with the reason I ran. Uh, and this is despite the fact that I had objectively overachieved 
Uh, you know, my wife will be the first to tell you I'd objectively overachieved. <laughs> um, but it wasn't like a mission accomplished moment. It wasn't like, hey, I did it. You know, I can go home. Instead, it was like I still feel despondent about the direction of American politics and our ability to rise to the challenges of this time. So then comes forward. And we talked a lot about how you did this and, and the nuances about what it's like to really be doing this across the country. When I've been talking to people, their question, which I know that you have addressed before, but people may or may not know, is like, so is a third party, is there going to be a third party running that they're putting up, a candidate running for the White House? Is, are you running? That question will be directly asked and hopefully answered later. No, well, my, my response is apparently I have another 40 years uh, to run, <laughs> you know. Uh. Let's, okay, let's cut to that. Uh, but, but the great misconception about what we're building with Ford is that it's about the presidential because that's what we've been conditioned to think. When you hear third party, party what do you think? Ralph Nader, yeah. Ross Perot, Jill Stein perhaps, uh, and think, oh, the, this is meant to be a monkey wrench into the presidential. We're not touching the presidential. Uh, you know, we're focused on the half a million local races here in Colorado and around the country, 70% of which are uncontested. But the press doesn't want to talk about that narrative. The press just wants to go to its knee-jerk, third party, not going to work, despite the fact that at this point, I mean, look around this room, you're all what I'd call at least a little bit third party curious. Uh, <laughs> but 65% of the country at this point wants a political alternative because we can sense that the current system is not working, and most of us are not actually being represented. So explain, though, what we've talked about in terms of you starting this as an organization across all 50 states and that work that you're doing. If it's not about the White House, what are you doing day in and day out? Who is <laughs> What am I doing indeed? <laughs> who is flipping? <laughs> Who's flipping? To, who do you want to see part, take up forward party? Yeah, so we can talk about it here in Colorado. Um, so first I want to call out my friend Adam Frisch, who's in the back row. <laughs> Uh, now, apparently a lot of you know Adam, uh, yeah, and, and uh, Adam is running against Lauren Boebert. Yes. I sense that <laughs> he lost by 550 votes in the, the last cycle. Uh, the experts had him losing by something like 50,000, so 550 is a lot less than 50,000. <laughs> and he's coming back to finish the job. So uh, it's candidates like Adam, it's Jenny Arndt, who's the mayor of Fort Collins, who just joined Forward Party uh, three days ago. Uh, we have elected officials who are trying to do the right thing. And one of the dirty secrets in our current political system is that each party is not meaningfully contesting the other party's turf. Uh, one thing that Adam's too polite to say, it's not like the Democrats were all gung-ho behind him last time because they'd written off his district because it, it was R plus nine. And at this point, the parties are essentially financial allocation engines. And they looked at his district and said, like, that's not worth an investment. So if, if you look around the country, by the way, that's most of the races. If you go to rural areas, it's not like the Dems are there saying, oh, we're going to make it happen. And the, and the reverse is true in a lot of the big cities, not like the Republicans are there. 75% of us don't live under two-party rule. We live under one-party rule. And I'm going to suggest that that's a recipe for bad policy, a lack of accountability, and a lot of frustration. So, so that is what we are trying to change at the local level. But again, the national press doesn't want to tell that story because at this point, their business model is baked on separating us into teams and saying, you know why you're, you're angry and frustrated? Those people over there. It's not because the system has been designed to slice us into blue zones and red zones, which, by the way, is the truth of the matter. The, the truth of it is that what is the approval rating of the U.S. Congress right now as we're here together? I'm anchoring you low. It's about 20%. What is the re-election rate for incumbent members? 94%. So in that system, most of our votes aren't meaningfully making a difference because the fix is in. And the reason why that gulf is so great is that 90% of the congressional districts around the country, including where most of you live, are either quite blue or quite red. Uh, and so the job security of those people in office, this is the great uh, fiction in American politics. The fiction is that our leaders have to make 51% of us happy, and if they succeed in that, then they keep their job. That is not true. 
The truth of it is that they have to keep the 10 to 12 percent who are voting in their party's primary off their back to make sure they get to the general, and that's how they keep their job. A lot of the folks here know elected representatives who seem pretty lucid in person, but then when you get a TV camera on them, no offense, Savannah, uh, they seem like totally different people. And you're like, why is that? It's because their audience is not you. Their audience is the 10 to 12% of the most ideological voters in their party that they need to keep happy so they don't get primaried. That's the only way they can lose their job. Well, I'm here from the national media. I will just point that out. Um, and I am happy to have this conversation because I do think that wherever the responsibility lies in terms of getting the message out that this is not about just the White House and is about local level, I'm happy to be part of that conversation tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and what you've said to me prior, which I'd like, if you don't mind, to get a little bit granular about, is the type of person that you are going for. There is a middle ground that is obviously what you're going for with a third party, but the types of people in each party that currently we are operating within, Democrats and Republicans, that you are looking for that you do think are interested in this. Well, yeah, so if you start a national party, it turns out you're starting 51 organizations because you have a party in each state and then you have the national. So you look at who's showing up, and a lot of the people who are showing up early uh, are folks like Lindsay Drath, our CEO, who's here tonight. Um, so she was a professional Republican operative who left the party when Trump took power in 2016 and said, you know what, this is not my party anymore, walked away from a lot of uh, money, frankly, uh, to try and do the right thing for the country. There are a lot of folks probably in this room who were Republicans for a long time and then have become increasingly uncomfortable. And then now you think you're politically homeless. And I'm here to tell you that Forward wants to be your home. There are people who have felt similarly about elements of the Democratic Party, where they say, wait a minute, uh, you know, I thought the Democratic Party uh, stood for certain things, but now we seem to have these increasingly ideological identity-based conversations that I'm not sure if that's actually productive or solving the, the nation's problems. Uh, and you can sense that the, the crux of the energy of the party uh, is in an ideological wing that doesn't resemble you. So folks that want to actually have our politics re reflect and represent the people in this room, but not just the people in this room. Let's just say the 70 to 80% of Americans who are on the outside looking in right now Forward wants to be your home. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free plus you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So what is your hope in terms of an eventual White House run? No, it's not, uh, we're not really, uh, we're not really uh, putting up points on that scoreboard. The scoreboard we're looking at is school boards, city council, county executive, mayor, maybe every once in a while a congressional race like Adams uh, that's a singularly compelling contrast and opportunity. Uh, and again, the national parties, like we have right now 15 uh, local officials who've identified with Ford, and that number is just going to grow and grow because you have 500,000 locally elected officials. Most of the county executives and school boards and mayors are nonpartisan positions. And so when Mayor Jenny Arna Fort Collins joined, she said, wow, this is my people. I've just wanted to get things done for the people of my town. 
uh, and I'm getting dragged into these national ideological political conversations because everyone's all about the R and the D. I'd rather just say, look, I'm forward. And then most people will hear that and say, I have no idea what that means. You know, like I haven't been conditioned to, to either love or hate that. So I guess I'll have to listen to you and see what you're about. And then when they hear what Jenny's about, they think, oh, this is actually uh, exactly what, what I'm about. So we're going to go from 15 to 50 to 500 locally elected officials over the next number of weeks and months. Uh, and then we're going to fill a stadium or an auditorium filled with those locally elected officials and all the people that want them to succeed around the country and want to grow the movement, that's going to happen next year. And then you're going to be invited, Savannah, and the national press are going to come and say, wait a minute, they have 500, 1,000 elected officials. We are already the third biggest political party in the country by resources. Now, I'll admit there's a very steep drop-off between two and three. <laughs> but still, uh, you know, for 18 months in or so, uh, we, we have a, a giant up arrow attached to us. That, that's the game we're playing. Uh, and the fixation on the presidential is, in my mind, corrosive. I don't know if you can tell this. I do not care. Like, I was running for president. I didn't care if I became president. Like, I, I just want the country to be in a great position to address the challenges of this time so that my kids and your kids can grow up in a place we're still proud of. You know, like, that, that strikes me as a, a, a pretty good mission. Uh, and that's what Ford's dedicated to. All of the national attention is on the presidential, and I understand why we're in a tough spot, but that is not at all what, what we're doing at Ford. But to quote from the FAQ section of your website, Forward Parties, you specifically reference wanting to have this, stop this voting for the lesser of two evils. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I read the website, so. yeah. Totally. Um, that's what a lot of people are doing. In fact, I, I don't know how you would describe when we've talked prior, you've essentially referenced who you will likely vote for, should you not be running, for the White House this year it is more about who you're not voting for. Yeah, and, and that's the disease we're trying to cure with Ford. Uh, imagine, imagine this. There are two people on the ballot, and you like them both so much that you're having trouble deciding between them. <laughs> and then maybe even imagine the step after that which is you can just rank them one and two and then walk away happy knowing that one of them is going to wind up winning. That's within our reach. Uh, all we need to do is install ranked choice voting or instant runoff voting as other countries already have done. Uh, and then you could have a much more representative, dynamic system where it's not just about the lesser of two evils. Another friend of mine who's here tonight is the political scientist Lee Drutman, uh, who's uh, the, one of the foremost thinkers on this. And he said the other night, which was really funny, he said, you know what's not a thing? The lesser of three evils. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but I do want to, to dig into what's happening at the presidential because it's all real. Um, so who are the nominees going to be? Probably Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Combined age, 160 years old. And 65% of Americans are not excited about those two choices. They're going to say, which of these can, can I accept more than the other? I do also want to say that to the extent that there uh, is a spoiler, there's a lot of attention being paid to something called the No Labels Unity Ticket. They haven't actually gotten to a point where that's real. But you know who is real right now? Cornell West running on the Green Party, which has ballot access around the country. There are people that are excited about Cornell, and like I've met Cornell, I get it, and as you can tell, like I, I'm eager to sort of have a genuine dynamic choice. Uh, but I will say the vast majority of Cornell's voters are probably going to come from one column more than the other, uh, and that to the extent there is the, this variable that, uh, that people are concerned about, like that does seem to be the trajectory that 2024 uh, is on. Uh, and to the extent that people are concerned about these choices or, or what's going to happen, uh, Forward shares your concerns. It's one reason why we're not getting involved in the presidential. Uh, we're going to be backing good pro-democracy candidates at every level. And as individuals, I'm sure we'll get involved in the presidential in any way we can be helpful. You but you know what that doesn't involve? Running. Yeah? So you are not running. <laughs> Uh, again, I've got 40 years, but I do not see myself running in this cycle because uh, I'm a math guy, and the math says that if I run, I probably increase the chances of Trump winning, and that is the opposite of what I'm here to do. So a moment ago you said many people are not excited about those candidates. 
How do you feel about the two candidates? Let's start with who you've just name-checked. Well, I, you know, I, I would say now. that uh, I feel the way many of you do, um, which is I wish we had better choices, uh, you know? And the fact that we may, and because I think there is this lack of enthusiasm for those two choices, I think that anyone else, else who's on the ballot is actually going to get an outsized proportion of votes. Uh, and I understand that. So I, I think that if you were, let's say, the Democratic Party, like I would be having a much more robust nomination process. And if Joe Biden emerges from that, fantastic. Um, but if voters look at Joe Biden, Gretchen Whitmer, Gavin Newsom, J.B. Pritzker, Phil Murphy, Roy Cooper, and choose someone else, then also fantastic. Uh, you know? and, and the fact that we're not actually having that conversation is doing the country a disservice. I think that Joe Biden... Uh, I, I think that Joe Biden should, should be a statesman and say, look, just like George Washington stepped away and said, I'm going to pass this baton, like I'm going to do the same. And he said that's what he was uh, going to do back in 2020, but you know, something changed between uh, then and now. And this is as someone who voted for Joe Biden, campaigned for Joe Biden, spent a lot of time with him and his family. He's a lovely man, but I do not think that this is the right approach for the country. So you would like to see him step aside? You know, if you wanted to run, you could have a genuine nomination process. You could have a genuine, uh, you know, set of debates, for example. But uh, the, the DNC has gone another direction, and I think that's driving a lot of frustration. And it's also on the cusp of delivering us into a situation. This is my great frustration with the two-party system. It is uniquely susceptible to authoritarianism. It is. You know, like, if you look at it, if you have one party fall prey to noxious leadership, all the incentives are for everyone in that party to fall in line. You know, and so you're, you're at the razor's edge just about all the time. I think that's not very smart. I think that if you were to have, let's say, even three players in the system and then forward had, you know, five to 10% in the middle, much more resistant to authoritarianism. Because then if one party goes off in its direction, they can't control everything. And then there's also a place for folks to go and say, look, I'm not down with this. Uh, I'm going to head this direction. It's much harder in this binary we've set up. We're living one of the worst nightmares of our founding fathers come to life. John Adams said two parties would be a great evil across the land. George Washington warned against partisanship on the way out. And what are we now? We're the most polarized we've been since the Civil War. And, uh, and the way out of this is not doubling down on partisanship and polarization. It's trying to get us to see ourselves as Americans, country over party, and say the $8 billion, the $10 billion we're going to spend beating each other up in 2024, maybe we should spend some of that fixing the incentives of the, the uh, system, moving to something like ranked choice voting, moving to nonpartisan open primaries, which would actually reconnect people to policy. Uh, all of that, and all of that is what Forward is working on, I will admit to you all, that is getting a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of what it should be getting. Relative to the eight ten billion dollars that's going to be spent in flaming us, you'll probably get some of that because you're a swing-ish state. Mm. So you'll you'll have the joy of the advertisements. <laughs> um, but then I say to folks, look, we're going to spend ten billion dollars beating each other up. How much are we going to spend the next day pulling us back together? So I had planned to ask several questions about the president's mental competency, his age, your concerns with that. But it sounds like you're telling me just that you would like to see him step out of this. Just let me put a fine point on that. Yeah, I think it's the right thing for the country. I do. In the wake of that, anyone that you would support specifically? Well, I, I listed five governors, uh, all of whom I think uh, are well positioned to be the next nominee of the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think there should be a robust process and let, let the party decide. Is your primary concern with the president his age? It's definitely a real concern, um, uh, but I, I think that there's something even more sort of representative or emblematic uh, of his age. Uh, what's happening, so this is the big picture dynamic we're trapped in that hopefully you will all help us get out of, uh, you know, with the forward party. Um, but the Republican Party has taken on this real anti-institutional energy. If you look at what percentage of Republicans trust the news media, mm. uh, it's 15%. And so if you're in the Republican Party, if you run against the news media, it's a very winning strategy, fake news, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the Democrats, uh, it, it's more or less the reverse, where 69% have a high trust uh, in, in media. 
Um, and there's an anti-institutional energy a little bit in the Democratic Party that's somewhat ideological. Um, so you, you have Joe Biden and the Democratic establishment uh, kind of uh, getting assailed on both sides by this anti-institutional energy. And so Joe Biden now, in part because of his age, kind of embodies these creaking, unresponsive institutions and because of that is going to engender a lot of hostility from people who might actually agree with him on a policy standpoint but aren't going to be able to, to get excited about voting for him or might not even be willing to vote for him. You know, I thought we'd always had fun together. Uh, you know, well, thank you, Savannah. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, I actually weigh this question all the time. It's like, am I a positive guy or a negative guy? <laughs> like, I'd, I'd love to <laughs> get a feel from you all. Um, <laughs> Do you I don't want know. An answer? I, you know, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. But, um, uh, but certainly, I, I enjoy any time we get to spend together. Okay, great. Just, just clearing that up. <laughs> so, the, I hear you when you express concern about the national media's focus and lack thereof on down ballot races and simply focusing on the run for the White House. But when we are still having as robust a conversation as we are right now about the race for the White House, seeming like there is a good chance it turns into voting for the lesser of two evils, in that context, what is your hope for how Forward Party can play in the future? Maybe it's election cycles down the road. Yeah. Uh, again, there's no reason why we can't have something like ranked choice voting, and then if there are different people that run, then they can't spoil the election. Then you can vote for them, one, and then uh, the Democrat or the Republican, two. Uh, and you'd have different factions emerge. Uh, you'd have, again, a much more dynamic system. There's nothing stopping us from doing this. Other countries have already moved to ranked choice voting for national elections. They've seen it reduce polarization. Uh, it's better for women and minority candidates, by the way, uh, for those of you who, who, um, who value uh, uh, the fact that we can actually make our system a bit more uh, representative. Um, and we're not having these conversations at all in the U.S. Uh, again, we are riding this creaking infrastructure that people are losing confidence in. And what Ford is about is trying to modernize it so that it will stand the test of time. Uh, you know, in a, in a system that's uniquely vulnerable to authoritarianism, saying, hey, you know what the plan is? We're just going to do this, even though, by the way, we, we're not competitive in, you know, half the country, but we're going to do this, we're going to ride this, and this is going to uh, actually stand the test of time, I, I think is a, a bad approach. Uh, and we, we have to have a more honest reckoning with what it would take for our institutions to be able to adapt to what, what's happening on multiple levels, including uh, this crumbling confidence in how genuinely representative our institutions are. If the president were to step aside, would you step in? It's, I, it's really genuinely not on my radar. Uh, um, yeah, it's not on my radar. As you can tell, you know, like I, I'm, I'm a professional question answer and I don't really have a response to that. Uh, <laughs> let's put it that way. Well, it's not no. Uh, you know, my, my goal, Savannah, is just to try and do as much good as I can in any given period. Um, I've, I've gotten so much from this country. I'm very blessed. My wife is here um, with, with us tonight. I'm still married, which is the, the most important blessing uh, in my life over this last number of years. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, I put Evelyn and the family through a lot <laughs> over this last number of years. Uh, and uh, I feel deeply indebted to this country for everything we've been given. Uh, I grew up the son of immigrants. Uh, I've already had the kind of career I could never have dreamt of as a young person. And I can tell you that in part because my parents tried to talk me out of running for president. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, beyond the imaginations uh, of, uh, you know, Taiwanese immigrants that their son could try and make a positive uh, dent in our political scene, in our culture. Uh, and I, I'm still just trying to do the same thing. I'm just trying to move us in a direction that we can all be excited about. Uh, and my holding office is, uh, you know, is tertiary to that. If it made sense, you know, like, I mean, I, I, I uh, never say never, but it's genuinely not a focus at all.
This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. As you move forward with forward... Uh, how much will you be defining where this party stands on issues? We all kind of know where most issues lie between Republican and Democrat. How will you start to define what this party means and who, for those who feel politically homeless, what this home entails? Uh, I sat with a um, new mayor-elect, uh, Yemi Mobilade, some of you might, might know, Colorado Springs. Uh, and he, we were talking about Ford and how we could support him, and he asked hey, where are you guys in terms of uh, litmus test policies, uh, uh, those sorts of things? And we said, Yemi, um, we want to support you in doing what you think is right for your community. Uh, we're trying to empower people who can make the best determination uh, at the, uh, the street level, the ground level. Uh, and so our principles uh, are fairly lofty. It's grace and tolerance, uh, election reform, um, uh, actually listening to election results, <laughs> you know, like, like things that um, most people would, would feel pretty comfortable with. Uh, but then after that, in terms of the specific approach to an issue or a problem, uh, we want to let the people that know best lead in that direction. And, and the folks in the community generally know best what to do, especially because communities are different. You know, what works in Colorado Springs uh, or Fort Collins might not be the right approach uh, in Schenectady. So let's just, if we could... Take an example. Like, let's say a community in somewhere like Montana, where somebody, where there's quite a split. It's a little bit of a blurred line because of how somebody might feel about gun rights, but the same way that they feel about climate change. Yeah. They kind of would split, maybe, the, like traditionally, with how you would associate that voter between parties. How do you start to put a point on what forward is? Well, that's exactly what our, our goal, Savannah. As uh, I was talking to someone the other day who said, "Look, uh, what if I'm." Uh, like, uh, I, I uh, am pro-life, but I'm also a climate activist. Uh, you know, where do I belong? Uh, and what Forward wants to do is actually give rise to a genuinely heterodox political conversation uh, that's inclusive and humanizing. Um, because the danger right now is that if you disagree with me on something I'm very, very passionate about, whether it's uh, guns or abortion or, or climate, then you're my enemy uh, and I'm supposed to have contempt for you. Um, and uh, we think that that's going to end up leading us towards this polarization, aggravation, and policies that don't resemble what people want. When, when people ask me, hey, what policies FORWARD stands for, FORWARD stands for reconnecting the people of this country to your elected representatives so they can deliver what you want. Uh, and so if you were to look and see that 75% of Americans want a certain thing, why aren't we getting it? And by the way, you can do that on issue after issue. Uh, a U.S. senator said this to me, and this is why what we're doing is so important, I feel. A U.S. senator said, look, we're at a point in American politics where an issue is worth more to us unaddressed than addressed. Mm. Because if we don't address it, we can get you mad, we can raise money, we can get votes on it. What happens if we lean across the aisle and do something about it? We worked with the enemy, we're ideologically impure, we antagonize the base, our job security goes down. And a real-life example of this, remember Marco Rubio proposing uh, immigration reform a number of years ago? Raise your hand if you remember that. Yeah, what happened the next week? He just said I was kidding. 
I was kidding. Like, I recant. What happened in those seven days? The folks in his party went to him and said, Marco, what are you doing? You do this, we're going to take a beating, some of us are going to lose our jobs. You do nothing, we're fine. So you can put immigration in that bucket, but you can also put climate in that bucket. You can put homelessness in that bucket. You can put education in that bucket. You can put democracy reform in that bucket. You can put AI in that bucket. You know, like, like, so people asked me yesterday, why aren't we making progress on AI, on AI? And I said, the reason is that good policy has absolutely nothing to do with whether uh, people are winning politically. Uh, they can do nothing, as they did on social media over the last two decades, to the detriment of our society, our democracy, and our kids' mental health. Zero political cost. There is zero political cost to them issuing bad policy or no policy. So that's why I fear that we're going to be uh, witness to, to many new things that AI engenders, some of which are great, but some of which are going to be terrible, uh, in large part because our government is going to be behind the curve. The point of this conversation is the party, but I have to ask just since you brought it up, and I know because we've talked about this, and yeah, I know we've got like checking the clock. No, we'll no. Cut, we'll I mean, the... this is actually going really well yeah. <laughs> in the sense that I feel like we're having a great conversation covering a lot of ground, and you know, I'm not at like 30 seconds or something. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, see? Aren't you happy I'm here from the national media? <laughs> Look. So, I mean, just kidding. We'll get the audience question soon. But I just I do want to ask you since you just said it, and it's obviously if you guys have been attending panels this week, a huge conversation at Aspen Ideas Festival as it is with everyone AI. Just as just briefly, what would you like to see happen in terms of AI regulation? Just I mean, people look to you in this yes. Realm. Um, there, there should be a dedicated federal agency. Uh, that focuses solely on AI. Uh, there should be licenses for models that are going to be used by more than, let's say, a million people, which is, by the way, a very, very small number because most of these models are now being used by tens of millions <laughs> of people very quickly. Uh, and uh, we're just all being lab rats and guinea pigs in real time. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't seem very smart. Uh, I, I think there should be a cabinet secre secretary dedicated to this, uh, and then there should be a global AI body you can't get everyone on board, but you can definitely get the EU on board. Uh, you can get some people on board, uh, and you start to make strides and maybe even put some pressure on the folks who are going to want to be outside of this global system. Uh, these are all steps that, you know, it's not just me calling for. Uh, folks like Tristan Harris and Gary Marcus and others are calling for them, uh, and we should be doing these things yesterday. Uh, the problem is that if you go and look at what's happening in Congress, there are a half a dozen different proposals, half a dozen different approaches, not sure which one's going to, to prevail. Meanwhile, these uh, models are just getting stronger and stronger every single moment. Do you see, I'm only asking because you mentioned Tristan, who I've spoken with a lot, um, what is the worst case scenario, do you think, with AI? So I, I was with my hairstylist, who's a very positive person, uh, and I, I was talking about this. You can judge her work. <laughs> um, but, but because she's a very positive person, she said, come on, Andrew, what's the worst that could happen? Uh, and then I, I, I said to her, I said, well, rampant identity theft, uh, a, a total uh, uh, degradation of public discourse uh, and any notion of truth, and unwarranted military conflict, including potentially nuclear conflict. And then she heard that list and was like, wow, that's actually pretty bad. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, like that, that's pretty bad. And, and those, are, uh, those are relatively predictable, um, given where the models are now. Those aren't even the science fiction, artificial general intelligence, uh, like species-threatening things. Those are just bad actors taking current tools and just doing things with them that uh, would be destructive. Today you tweeted out a live blog from... A different national media news organization. By the way, NBC News is a great one during big breaking news events. Uh, following, as we got several Supreme Court decisions today, but of course the big news being affirmative action. Uh, you've spoken on this in the past, but what do you think about what happened today? What's your reaction? Yeah, um, uh, I think that these racialized zero-sum games uh, are not the right conversations. Uh, and um, this is what I wanted to put out, but because this is such like a, a textured, nuanced conversation, I was like, yeah, I'll... Keep it to myself, but um, Harvard's endowment is $53 billion. Uh, they could double the endowments of all of the top 10 HBCUs next year on interest alone if they chose to do so. 
and so if, if you look at these institutions and what they're doing or not doing to actually genuinely tackle racial inequity, uh, like we're having the wrong conversation. I mean, Harvard could open a new satellite campus in Detroit and Memphis tomorrow. It could triple its class size and then become a more genuine path to, to opportunity for more people. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it could do a lot of things. Um, but what, what we're doing right now is we're saying, hey, here's this current institutionalized system. L let's uh, say that this is the path to equity, even though by the data, the vast majority of students of color at Harvard are from the top two socioeconomic quintiles and probably would have been fine, <laughs> you know, regardless. So as you can tell, this was not something for Twitter. <laughs> so we've um, over the character count. But... The, like these are the the right conversations, and the the, the fact that we're getting bogged down uh, in the, this current scarcity mode uh, is tearing us apart and not bringing us together. So you essentially just think that it's not the point. It should not be the point, and my hope is that what happened today actually ends up galvanizing a more genuine conversation about how we can ad address uh, inequities in our society. I want to circle back to what we talked about earlier, but a growing conversation is the age of politicians. Do you think that something should be done about that in a, yes, term limits, but putting caps, putting age caps, doing any type of mental fitness test, do you think that age should be, there should be more parameters around it that are actually set in stone when it comes to politicians? I remember the good old days, like the 90s, maybe the 2000s. Um, the thought was, look, if you're really, really old, then the voters will choose someone else. Uh, but, but the problem is that our, our systems have become so closed uh, that that is not happening, and, and we're left uh, having to evaluate the mental and physical health uh, of uh, people who are you know, uh, past the age of 80. Um, and then when people say, hey, the voters can decide on something else, we can't actually. <laughs> There's actually uh, no way to do that. So someone here in the front uh, said term limits, um, uh, and about three quarters of Americans are for term limits. Uh, and to me, if three quarters of Americans want something, you should probably take it pre pretty seriously. Um, but th there are a lot of people who are frustrated that if you get sent to D.C., it does become this uh, multi-decade lifetime appointment that that ends up. Uh, I joke, but this is pretty accurate, that D.C. is on a 25-year tape delay uh, uh, as a result. Um, uh, and that, that tape delay might be acceptable if the pace of change wasn't so rapid. Um, but now the pace of change is, is speeding up more and more, and, and that tape delay is going to become disastrous. What, do you, what responsibility do you see with young people getting into politics? What would you like to see in order to make sort of a sea change even possible? All right, Savannah, I, I know where this is going. <laughs> all right, so, and, and this is, again, all right. Uh, if you look at the numbers, young people are not pumped about the two-party system or other major parties, um, but they're also not that pumped about democracy, unfortunately. And if you say to them, hey, you got to get out and vote, you got to do these things, uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, tune out. Um, but, but here's the, the tough truth of it is that in most of these environments, they actually have a point. Uh, you know, like they, they've been put in situations where, again, 70% of local races, uncontested, uncompetitive, 90% of the districts are decided ahead of time in terms of which party is going to win. So then if you go to the young person and be like, hey, vote, 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 they'll be like, look, my, my vote's not going to matter. Uh, and then if you look at our system, you'd be like, wow, they, they actually might have something there. So what, what we need to do for young people is like, we're going to make your vote matter for real. Uh, and then we need your help. We need your help in a very, very real way. Um, now, at, at the national level, will youth turnout make a difference in some of the, the biggest race we're talking about? Uh, yes, it will, though even in this presidential that we're all fixated on, there are only eight states that are going to matter. You know, Like in 42 states, if you say get out and vote, they could legitimately say to you, my vote will not make a difference, mm. and they would not be incorrect. So, <laughs> so, so what we want for young people, I love... It when young people run, uh, uh, like I want them to run, I, I want them to grow and develop, um, but I think we owe them a system that will actually make the best use of their talents and energies, uh, and we should play it straight with them and say, look, like we've left you a bit of a mess, uh, you know, like we're, we're not setting you up for success, and we're going to do our best to fix it in an honest and genuine way, and not just put it on you and say, vote more.
or run more. Though I will say, vote more and run more. <laughs> what does success look like for you with Forward Party? Is it a number of people who eventually come to find you? Is it winning certain races? I, I know there's probably many answers to this question, but give us something tangible that you'd like to see in the near future. Um, a number of locally elected officials that are Forward or Forward affiliates um, over the next 12 months, let's say. Uh, and some of you know elected officials. Uh, you can nudge them and say, hey, you might want to check out Forward Party. You know you can join Forward Party and keep your Democratic or Republican party registration uh, because we're not trying to disenfranchise anyone. Uh, you know, the, the things that you have to be for are for some of these electoral reforms and lowering the temperature of our politics, uh, saying, look, I can disagree with you and, and we're, we're still both citizens and Americans. Um, but it, it, I think that we can get into the hundreds in terms of locally elected officials. Um, I, I will say, too, I am a numbers guy. Uh, you know, uh, I, we, I'd like to see um, us go from our current 5 to $10 million budget uh, up into the, uh, you know, triple digits. Um, but I think that might be something that happens uh, in later cycles. Um, but that, I, you know, we're on that path, uh, and I can see it very, very clearly because when we talk to rooms like this, a lot of people are like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> like, this is actually like a, a, a very grounded, gritty, long-term plan that also has short-term upside. All right, how about some audience questions? You game? Yeah, of course. Could I have your uh, response to whether or not the Electoral College is a reasonable or fair way to elect a president? Um, so the question was about the Electoral College. Here's my proposal for the Electoral College. I, I hope you guys are into it. Um, so there are some people that say, hey, we should get rid of the Electoral College and just go to the popular vote. The problem is you'd have to get all the rural states to vote for that, and it's going to weaken their uh, clout and power. It's a non-starter, and you would need a constitutional amendment to get there. So what do we do? Instead of saying, let's abolish the Electoral College, which in my opinion is a non-starter, uh, we should say states should allocate their electors proportionally to the proportion of the vote that the candidate gets in their state. And one of the virtues of this, one, you can get all the states on board because you're like, wait a minute, that actually helps me. Uh, and if you were a presidential candidate, you might go to states that are not uh, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Uh, swing you have, you're right. I mean, the, why should the eight swing states get all the love? Don't you also want to you know, see a presidential candidate every once in a while and not asking you for money? Because we're in Aspen. I know they come and ask you for money regardless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so that's a reform that would empower most of the states, and you could actually imagine a path to a constitutional amendment. Hmm. I saw a hand right over here. Also, I've got a clever way to get term limits done. Okay. Term limits, but current lawmakers are exempt. <laughs> right? Oh. And then they can just hang out forever and be like, hey, look, we reformed. Right? It's like cost-free. So, Andrew, I loved your book, uh, Forward. Thank you for writing it. So my question is um, about the fair use doctrine and its contribution to polarization in that fair use doctrine only covers the airwaves and not cable and Internet. Therefore, there's a kind of a race to the bottom and clickbait, and, and it's contributing to polarization. So how do we reverse that trend in the media, which is driving people apart? Oh, th thanks for the question. All right. So, I'm <laughs> sorry to Savannah. We're going to talk about the media again. So All right. I just took a sip. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so you have political incentives that are dragging both parties to the, the extremes because of the ideological voters. And then you have news media separating us into teams and tribes. And then you have social media pouring gasoline on the whole thing. Uh, and... One of the problems with this second layer is that you also got rid of or lost over 2,000 local newspapers that used to actually be relatively up the middle and nonpartisan. So after that paper disappeared, and I know in Aspen I saw you have several local papers and I did an interview with one yesterday, so <laughs> very, very unusual. Um, but if you get rid of the local paper, what takes its place? Cable news and social media. So what you're seeing is a nationalization of uh, a lot of politics 
uh, in a way that's very, very unhealthy. So what you're describing with the fair use doctrine, uh, believe it or not, of these three levels of political incentives, media, and social media, which of those three do you think is the most fixable? Believe it or not, by the numbers, it's our political system. Uh, and and I, I'm going to walk you through why that is. Uh, how many of you know who Mary Peltola is? If you don't have your hand up, congratulations. You're not a political junkie. You're probably happier. <laughs> uh, but Mary T Peltola was the state legislator in Alaska who defeated Sarah Palin uh, in, the, in the last cycle. Um, and she did that in large part because Alaska got rid of their party primaries in 2020. Um, this is also why Lisa Murkowski is back in the U.S. Senate, despite being the only Republican senator who voted to impeach Donald Trump, who was on the ballot in 2022. By the way, Alaskan Republicans noticed this. Her popularity was measured at 8% approval among Alaskan Republicans. So how could she actually win? They got rid of the Republican primary in 2020. So you have Sarah Palin out, Mary Peltola in, Lisa Murkowski back. By the way, of the 10 Republican House members who voted to impeach Trump, how many of it made it back through the primaries? Two. And among the eight that did not make it, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, Peter Meyer, Anthony Gonzalez, some of the, frankly, the, the best patriots of that cohort, but you have a system where 94% of incumbents come back and then 80% of, 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 of the House members who voted to beat Trump got wiped out. The only two that made it back were in Washington State, where they had a top two primary system, and it was similar to Alaska. How much did it cost to get rid of the party primaries in Alaska? $6 million. The best bargain you can imagine. I mean, uh, imagine if Sarah Palin was back on our, our TV screens. You know, we're all two IQ points dumber and... Uh, and <laughs> Like one, you know, one. <laughs> so, so, so now, now Alaska is a cheap state in terms of the getting rid of the primaries. Um, Nevada ballot initiative get rid of the party primaries, seventeen million dollars, and it won fifty three forty seven. Even though both parties came out against it. Um, so this is a very long way of saying how do you get to changing fair use and other rules? Is you have to amend our uh, political system to get better policy. The price tag in terms of mending our politics, getting rid of the, the, you know, the control of the extremes, believe it or not, I'm going to estimate that cost at about $200 million uh, in a system that 8 to $10 billion is going to get spent beating us up. And how do I get to $200 million? That's running uh, 10 ballot initiatives uh, in different states with a success rate of 50%. So you might have 8, 10 U.S. senators who are free of their primaries and think about how more lucid they would be the next day. Senators have gone up to Lisa Murkowski on the floor of the U.S. Senate and said, we envy you so much you don't have primaries anymore. Uh, you know? So if you get 10 senators who are free to do the right thing, you might save democracy, and then they might make progress on the media layer and the social media layer. Believe it or not, of these three things, I get frustrated when people talk about, oh, we're going to fix media. We're going like, to fix social media. It's like, you know what? We're not going to fix media or social media unless you fix government. And believe it or not, that is actually the easiest of the three. Right here. Um, in third row here, in the hat. I have a, basically a question, like an inside baseball question that I was hoping you might be able to answer. Um, <laughs> So my question is this, um, why won't anyone of stature like a Gavin Newsom or so run against Joe Biden? I, I have a two-part question. I mean, maybe it's a three-part question. The, the second part of the question is, do you see that also happening? There being like a credible person that does run, uh, no offense to Bobby Kennedy Jr., but somebody of like who might actually be able to win um, like a Gavin Newsom or anyone of that nature. Um, and the third part to that question is, if that doesn't happen, do you see a credible non-Cornell Westie type of person running such as yourself? And not you, I know not you, um, but running such as yourself as a third party. All right. Uh, um, what I've heard is that uh, the word has gone out to Governor Newsom and Governor Whitmer and Governor Pritzker and Governor Cooper and Governor Murphy do not run this cycle, but if Joe has a health problem between now and the convention in August, you are on the short list to replace him. 
and so they, they've all been told, okay, like, I guess I'll uh, stand down for a minute. And because they've all stood down, then the DNC can say, look, no debates, no process, it's Joe. If Governor Newsom runs, then it's impossible for them to say, hey, like, no process. <laughs> because, as you say, you know, he's the governor of the uh, you know, like, largest state, et cetera. So that is what I have heard in terms of why you're not seeing uh, one of the governors decide to step up and challenge him, despite the fact that within those circles, there are real misgivings <laughs> about uh, Joe's running again. Uh, in terms of... What have you heard there? Uh, I, 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 let's, let's just say the, the things that we all think, they think too. Uh, and they even express them when they're not with a reporter. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Um, uh, in, in terms of other candidates emerging, uh, I think there's a, a, there's a real chance of it, in part because they'll look at the numbers and say... Uh, this is the biggest opportunity for uh, a non-major party candidate in a generation, uh, and uh, like, you know, not going to be me and forward. Um, but I, I am seeing folks who are uh, trying to game that out. Um, the, the most prominent that you would have heard of is No Labels, who are at least getting ballot access, uh, potentially running um, outside of the two-party system. Well, I am a reporter, and just said that, so let me just ask a couple follow-up questions. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, when you say that's what you've heard they've been told, can you elaborate on that? Uh, someone who's, uh, who's within, them, uh, within the party uh, said to me, over drinks in Washington, D.C., hey, th this is what uh, I've, I've, I'm hearing from various people that are close to one or, or another governor. And when you say they express misgivings, anything to add there? <laughs> no. Uh, they're having the same conversations that many other Americans are. I've seen that hand in the back over there for a while. So, <clears throat> love the ranked choice voting and everything, but that uh, restoring reproductive rights was voted for in the House and in the Senate with virtually every Democrat at lost by two votes in the Senate because of a Republican filibuster. The same thing for voting rights, the same thing for background checks. Wouldn't we better be, be better off if we just elected more Democrats instead of having a third party candidate? Of, um, you mean, and, and, and at what level? What are we talking about? No, I mean, for local levels, I understand, but. Virtually every Democrat has voted the way the American people want in the House and the Senate for a really long time. We just need a few more because Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema wouldn't overcome the filibuster. We can get everything we want by electing more Democrats in the House and the Senate, All right. um, including so, Adam. So first let me say that I agree with the general impulse that if most Americans want something, that is the policy we should be getting. Uh, and then you have to dig in and say, why are we not getting it? Um, and you can look at someone like Joe Manchin and say, why isn't he uh, acting more like uh, Democrats want him to? But the fact is, Joe Manchin is from West Virginia, where Trump won by 30 points, uh, and uh, he's something of an anomaly. There are other Democrats who also represent places that uh, are not traditionally Democratic, that Joe Biden was not competitive in. And so I'm going to suggest to you that this is a path. Um, when you say elect more Democrats, um, there are whole swaths of the country that will not elect a Democrat. They are not competitive, and the brand is terrible in those places. I know this in part because I've been to a lot of those places. And when I was running for president as a Democrat, they would say, hey, running for president? Say, yes. What party? Democrat. And they would go, oh, they'd like flinch. Like I just turned a color. Um, so, and I don't mean the great color that I am. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to call your attention to a candidate named Evan McMullen, who ran for U.S. Senate in Utah against Mike Lee. Utah is a red state, uh, and a Democrat would not win there. And so what the Democrats did is the Democrats did not run a candidate. They got behind Evan McMullen, and then he put a real race in a place where Democrats would not have been competitive. Uh, if you put a D next to Evan 
it's a non-starter. If you put a D next to candidates in rural areas, it's a non-starter. So we have to think a little bit bigger and more creatively about how we're going to reconnect people to leadership. And by the way, I'm going to suggest the reverse is true in a place like California where Democrats run everything, but people are frustrated. They're looking up and saying, wait a minute, like, well, why are there drug users uh, like, uh, on this corner? Like, why am I considering leaving because the like, quality of life's not what it should be? It's because of a lack of competition on both sides, and you're not going to be able to deliver competition if you insist on the blue versus red. And by the way, the blue versus red is also going to have the byproduct of uh, pitting us against each other, tearing families and communities apart, not being able to solve problems in a lasting way because guess what? The pendulum's going to swing back the other way, so all you would have done is stick something in for two years that then gets reversed two or four years later. That is not the path to success. I'll go right here, and then I'll get some on this side of the room, and we've got just a few minutes left. Right here. First of all, congratulations for your objectivity <clears throat> and honesty in all the points that you've been answering. I have a very, not a very deep question. Uh, you mentioned twice or three times the huge amount of money that's spent in a presidential campaign. Would it be possible for having a limit of expenditure? And then, consequently, for governors and senators, et cetera, mayors. I mean, because this is lots of money that's always thrown away. Um, you sound like you're from another part of the world, are you? <laughs> uh, I'm an American for 32 years, but I am originally from Brazil. <laughs> I say that because people from other countries are like, wow, your system you know, is nuts in terms of money. Um, so 80% so plus of Americans want to get less money in politics and like, get money out. Uh, the path to do that is a constitutional amendment overturning Citizens United. It's very, very difficult. Uh, and now, I, I'm part of an organization called American Promise that's trying to get the Constitution amended to overturn Citizens United. We're at about 10 states. It's uh, you know, uh, still many states away. Um, now, uh, if you ask me the path to getting money out of politics, I'm actually going to t say to you it's forward party. Because right now, the, the two parties, if you go to them and say, hey, let's get money out of politics, uh, they'll say, like, my hands are tied because I'm, like, uh, I'm in a firefight with folks, and like, they're going to spend hundreds of millions, I'm going to spend hundreds of millions. Um, so if Forward manages to get in there and uh, say to members of Congress, look, don't you hate dialing for dollars with 60% of your time? Like, don't you want to spend time with your families a little bit? <laughs> you, you, you might have a shot at... Uh, at engendering a real reform movement, but it's very, very hard to make that happen from within the current two-party dynamic. 85% plus of Americans want to get uh, money out of politics, uh, and we should fight for it. Hi, thank you for, for being here this evening. Uh, I just want to follow up on something I asked you last night. As I gave you an overview last night. My question for you this evening is on the how. The parties that we have that represent our country are, to say dysfunctional, is, is high praise. And, and often it's the way they are in dialogue with each other, which is more like a diatribe than anything worthy of the human being that's standing on the other side of this microphone or this, 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 this place. How can you, do you have any ways, I don't see any, my ideal would be Justice Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that model. They were friends, they were ideological opponents, but they were deep friends. Do you think that you can bring together people who have different ideologies to that extent together and honor their differences and their humanity in the process? That is the vision and goal of Forward. Uh, we want to be the humanization of politics movement. Uh, and let people know it's okay to disagree, it's okay to think certain things. Uh, we still love you, we still value each other. My co-chair at Forward is a woman named Christy Todd Whitman, who is the governor of New Jersey, uh, two terms, and the EPA secretary under George W. Bush. She's an environmentalist. Uh, Christy and I travel around the country. We often tag team various events. Uh, I, would, I would bet my life on Christy Todd Whitman. Uh, and we haven't actually had policy conversations because we know that we're unified in trying to bring the country back together. Mm. Uh, and that's what so many of us want. Uh, so can we 
fight these tides, these growing tides of darkness and dehumanization and demonization with a positive, inclusive, independent political movement that loves our fellow Americans, that is the effort that we are embarking on with Forward, and I hope we have a chance of success. Hmm. One last question from this side of the room. I'll go with this gentleman here. What do you think of the chances of rank, getting ranked voting through or ranked vote? Oh, ranked choice voting? So ranked choice voting uh, was just approved in Fort Collins. It's going to be considered in Denver. Uh, that There are dozens of cities that are now considering it. It just got, got issued in Oregon statewide. So if it gets approved, then every election, including federal, will be ranked choice voting in Oregon. Uh, in Colorado, it's been signed off on for municipalities, but not statewide. Um, it is sweeping the country. If you imagine even here in Colorado, if Denver used it and Fort Collins and these other cities, then it's normalized. Everyone, By the way, after you use ranked choice voting, you're like, oh, I get it, and now I love it uh, because people have to listen to me even if my first choice is another candidate. Uh, it rewards positive campaigning because if, if I trash you, then we both look kind of bad. <laughs> the, the third person uh, does better. If you're a woman who's naturally a coalition builder, you think, oh, like th this actually is my kind of uh, environment. So there's a, a real wave for ranked choice voting around the country. And if you want to help make ranked choice voting happen, join forward because what we're doing is marching around the country place to place, town by town, and saying this is the way that we can take the temperature down in our politics and deliver solutions uh, to the American people. Mr. Andrew Yang, always a blast. Thank, Thank you, you very Thank you, Savannah. I appreciate the heck out of you. Thank you. You are great. Thank you all. Great questions. <laughs>